Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Thanks for listening to the New Statesman podcast, a New Statesman network show. Why not try one of our other podcasts, like Seriously, the pop culture show hosted by Caroline Crampton and Anna Leskovitz. That's S-R-S-L-Y. Find out more and subscribe at newstatesman.com forward slash seriously. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. This week... On the New Statesman podcast, we talk about what should happen to universal credit, the fate of Brexit, and I interview the American author Rebecca Solnit. Stephen, we're recording this in the middle of what I can't remember. Last week was Hell Week. This is supposed to be like a bloody Hell Week because uh, political journalists don't get out enough. But that means that what's kind of happening with cabinet and everything like that is still very much up in the air. Theresa May gave a statement on Monday, which everyone got briefly quite excited about, and then turned out to be yet another one in her genre of like, "Oh, I'm bloody cross about Brexit, me." But this is probably a good opportunity just to to zoom out a bit. Because I think the trouble I find with Brexit is there's a lot of, it's a bit like one of those terrible plays, right? And sorry, to, I don't mean to trigger you, but where lots of stuff happens. You know when you go and see a sort of farce and just there's lots of stuff constantly happening all the time, people dropping their tea trays and dropping their trousers and falling through windows and all that kind of stuff. And then at the end you kind of go, what actually happened? And that's how I feel about Brexit. It's a bit like a really rubbish version of Noises Off. Yeah, I mean, so the thing I'm always really struck by is... Given this is, you know, by a considerable distance, the most important and significant political project since, the, you know, like the, the post-war creation of effectively the modern state in many ways, with huge long-running implications for both the shape of the United Kingdom and its economic model. Uh, whenever I go on even quite a short holiday, so, you know, two days away, I feel I often come back, A, having missed the creation of a new form of jargon, but B, the new jargon does not add very much. And I was thinking about, about the, the backstop, right? What does the word backstop mean to most people? Nothing. Yeah, the backstop could very easily lead to everyone not just becoming poorer in the long term, but like a fairly immediate drop in living standards. To me, it means the person who stood behind you at rounders and caught the ball. It's like rounders version of a wicket keeper. I actually didn't know that there were names for the rounders positions. First position. It's not. First, it's like baseball, isn't it? It's like first base. I mean, I, I have no idea. I just in my mind, rounders is like not a game that adults play, and therefore. No, I, I mean, I didn't play it as as an adult, Steve. This was at school. I, but if I you want to segue I'm... into the rant about how I'm annoyed because I went to an all girls school, we didn't get to play proper sports. We had to play joke sports like rounders. 
then we can have that for another time. So anyway, yes. Yeah, so, so I... Okay, explain to me, because I'll be honest with you, and I know this is a terrible thing to admit as a political correspondent, because I'm not in the lobby, because I'm currently doing three days a week doing my book, where things happened safely in the 1970s, I may have tuned out just a little bit on some of the fine details. The current plan from Brussels is that, which, so the backstop, I've got this, I can do this, is that we will all stay in the customs union for a bit until they magically sort it out. No, right. So the, essentially the, the idea of, of the backstop is that because obviously trade talks, you know, stall or break down when, you know, a government on one side or the other changes or goes into coalition talks or, you know, or, you know, stuff happens, right? The idea of the backstop is basically no matter what happens with the Brexit talks, even if they ended up stalled like, you know, the Doha trade round did or whatever, uh, there would not be... Sorry, I love um, your invocation of the Doha trade round. As if everyone's sitting at home buffing on their pipes and going, oh, oh, I remember the Doha trade round. Great days, great times. Um, but, you know, e- even if, you know... So even if there's a no deal per- like everywhere else, the backstop means the that... The backstop would, would kick in and would exist in perpetuity. To do what? To basically keep Northern Ireland in parts of the single market and and the customs union. Right. Now, the issue this creates for the DUP is the... the the second that happens, it becomes significantly easier and in your interest if you are a young Northern Irish entrepreneur or someone who's set up, you know, a mini chain of two cafes or whatever to set up your third. I mean, even allowing for the fact that actually cafes was a really bad example because there is a literal sea between Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom. But yeah, you're a small mail order business. Yeah, it, it, yeah. you want to. You're the third bit of it. You'll move into the Republic rather than Britain. So at that point, it becomes a thing where Northern Ireland becomes more Irish than British. Which the Democratic Unionist Party quite keen on the whole Unionist bit, quite unkeen on the idea of basically reunifying Ireland by stealth. Yeah. Now, obviously and understandably, people often go, but you don't seem to mind divergence when it's about equal marriage or abortion, abortion rights. Yeah, but. Crucially, that doesn't, and in fact, actually, that now makes Northern Ireland as unlike Ireland as it makes it as unlike the United Kingdom. Their central fear, which I actually think is entirely reasonable, is that having a a customs and regulatory border in the Irish Sea is an existential threat. But it's also about that, I mean, and we can all, and I agree, I mean, the abortion and marriage point is is a perfectly valid one as far as it goes. But it also denies the idea about their what they perceive as the point of their party and their coalition of voters who they perceive to be socially conservative and also really into unionism, right? Like that they have two very different sets of, guess what, loads of us hold incredibly contradictory opinions in our heads. Those are their electoral incentives, which I guess has been, so the chief whip tweeted a picture of his phone, um, Julian Smith. Yeah of his phone off the hook, right, which we think was a kind of stealth reference to the fact that the DUP classically just all switch their phones onto airplane mode and uh, and pretend to and like turn off all the ho- lights in their house like it's Halloween and they don't want to give away any trick-or-treat stuff, right? So this is we've now moved into the I'm definitely playing hardball stage of negotiations, right? Yeah. Are they in fact playing hardball, though? Um, well, no, because, I mean, the, the problem the Conservative Party has in, in, in Brexit in general, right, is... Essentially, they are the only group. I'm not counting any of the opposition parties uh, at Westminster for now, just for the purposes of simplicity. They are the only group who doesn't have a mandate to take some form of economic damage, right? Yeah, the the you know, the, the DUP uh, do have a, a mandate to take economic damage to be intransient. I mean, that's quite literally the brand and the root of their political success 
is. So I thought the brand and the root, their political success was we'll screw a really good deal for Northern Ireland out of Westminster. See the confidence and supply arrangement. We'll maintain the Barnet formula in but, its current form. But no so we get more per capita public spending. But bear in mind in that election in which they, you know, had a you know, ten seats, huge high watermark, right? No one expected there to be a hung parliament mm. in, in the United mm. Kingdom. They fought it effectively on a platform of the biggest party will be seen as the representative of Northern Ireland, come what may. Look at what happened in March when a bunch of you decided and the fact that we'd literally burnt money meant and you would stay home or you'd experiment <laughs> with voting for the UUP or the Alliance. Got cash for ash. That seems now that seems like a political scandal from another age. Remember I mean, we had all this sort of still rumbling on, yeah, right? I so know, there right? is like the hilarious possibility that midway through she could Arlene, Arlene Foster, Foster could just get yeah. defenestrated for encouraging people to burn fuel that they didn't need to burn in order purely to get subsidies. Well, so... Um, what the, a great political scandal. The renewable heat, and for reasons I don't understand, what the I stands for initiative, always causes no? me to struggle. I th- the thing is, I th- I want to say initiative, but I all, I think it might be incentive, actually. Ooh, nice. But in any case, it was a, a, an, you know, a scheme designed to get people to move to renewable schemes of energy. Oh, yeah. However, it, it did not include any proviso that this be like-for-like replacements, which meant you had, you know, farmers, like, buying new heaters for barns that had previously stood cold in order to uh, (laughs) collect the cash. This scheme, which has now been ended... uh, Is Is it a better or worse scheme than universal credit? I mean, it's a lot worse. I mean, in terms of its total cost to the... I mean, it was going to cost two billion over the course of its life, which is obviously a tiny amount Universal credit is going to cost way more than that, though. Yeah, but it's a tiny amount of money in terms of what the government spends. But in terms of what... Paying people to burn the the Northern renewable. Irish executive spends, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, yeah. that is basically the equivalent of half the NHS in England and Wales, Ooh. right? We're talking about a really large amount of money in terms of the amount of money that goes in. No, what I mean is, if you were to scale it up, oh, I see. I like. I was like, I think the NHS costs more than four billion a year, no. Stephen. I got really bad news. But, here, but I know just, what you mean. You in terms just... of the the block grant, yeah. the amount of it that's gone up in literally smoke is equivalent it, to essentially just torching a load, well, half of yeah. hospitals and now, half of their stuff. Yeah. There is no suggestion that Arlene Foster, who at the time when the scheme was founded was at the Department of Business, behaved deliberately and properly. But there are still open questions about whether or not ministers should have uh, noticed sooner than they were quite literally incentivizing people to burn money. Uh, that is what uh, helped trigger the election, which saw the loss of the unionist majority, which is one of the reasons why uh, Stormont is currently mothballed and no one expects it to return anytime soon. Um, then, but but ultimately for the DUP, if they have to, if if ultimately they have to go down a route which leads to this uh, parliament being collapsed, they will they they have a perfectly plausible story to tell to their voters. Uh, ditto. In terms of the position of the Irish government, now obviously a no-deal scenario is hugely damaging uh, for uh, the Irish economy. A hard border is hugely damaging for the Irish economy and the peace process and, of course, many people's sense of which nation they they live in, right? So in terms of the series of bad things to happen if you are Leo Varadkar and you, you don't want to go down in history as a an epochal failure... Uh, again, he has a political mandate to take economic damage. Ditto the SNP, who have all the way along said, look, you know, this, Scotland didn't vote for this, but also Le Clue is in the name. They are a nationalist party whose yeah. answer to bigger questions is, we think we should have an independent Scotland, which would we would want that to be in the EU. I take your point. Um, so, um, which leaves us with Labour. So there's been a lot of chat about whether or not 
they could get Labour MPs to vote for the the deal, basically. Um, and your position on that has always been kind of you'd need something pretty magnificent as an incentive to immolate your career, upset your CLP, and be seen forever as a kind of huge traitor by your own side. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, right? So when you speak to Labour MPs about it, so actually one of the weird things is 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 uh, Labour MPs have come back from the recess uh, in quite a good mood. Not They mostly don't feel any more cheerful about Brexit or the political situation. They're just more cheery about it. I don't really know why. Maybe there's some really good drugs going around uh, uh, committee room 14. But, um, yeah, you'll talk to them and go like, oh, yeah, I've been speaking to Downing Street. And they're like, oh, yeah, they're planning to, like, you know, give my local leisure centre a gold jacuzzi. And then they'll kind of, once you've sort of had that kind of semi-joke about it, you go, well, where are you, where is your thinking on it? And they'll go, look, I haven't been approached. I am worried about no deal. Having campaign, having seeing as we have campaigned in a general election and said consistently that we will not accept no deal, we can't, how do we turn around and say, but we will accept no deal over this? The sort of big crucial factor, though, is although there are many, many more Labour MPs than you would need to bail the government out who say that, um, Labour whips haven't really got started yet. And the argument they will make, which I actually think is, to be honest, true, uh, as well as having the benefit of uh, allowing Labour MPs to do what they would prefer not to do, i.e. rebel, is they will go, look, voting against a deal in December, November does not mean no deal in March. We have to do this to bring the government to its knees and to keep our coalition on side. And then we can be, you know, like once we've done that, then we can be the people who who can get the Tories out of their mess. But the first thing you have to do is vote against this deal. My worry about all of this is there are a lot of people who are like, oh, we're playing high stakes poker, maybe even four dimensional chess. And I'm just not sure that they're good enough to play four dimensional chess. Well, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, there's the kind of thing about maybe that so there's all this, all these kind of conspiracies going around. That Theresa May is just like making it look really hard so that then she can sell her eventual compromise. And you kind of go, I kind of get that, but also I just think it, maybe sometimes you underestimate people's just ideological fixedness, and actually they're not. You're not dealing with reasonable people. You know, it's that kind of classic economics problem of like, if people act rationally, then this will happen. And you go, okay, I'm going to have to stop you there, classical economics, because there is a big problem with people, which is that they do crazy, crazy things. So yeah, lots of people are playing a high stakes game. I mean, I I do think partly because when you talk to pro-European conservative MPs, they will often say, you know, well, look, I don't like checkers. They'll go, but it's a deal which which should be able to pass Parliament solely with the votes of conservative MPs. That, that does not create a border in the Irish Sea. So if the ERG doesn't take it, the only other potential Brexit then passes is customs union and single market. So I think on the pro-European side, there are not going to be Labour MPs who end up voting for the first deal May brings back. And on the, however, of course, although there are many more pro-European rebels, so about 100 Labour MPs ever have rebelled on some type of European issue. The vast majority of them have voted to make Brexit softer than the Labour position. But 15, 20 of them have voted to make Brexit harder. Now, the big question there in all of those seats is, right, is if you're a Labour MP, there are three forces on you. Your own conscience about the shape of Brexit. Your constituency party getting rid of you and being angry that you've triggered, yeah, you've, you've, you've let the government off the hook. Three, uh, your voters. And I'm not, by the way, listing those in a in any particular order. But now most Labour MPs, uh, their conscience goes, I don't want a hard Brexit, but I also don't want um, I don't want a uh, yeah a, alignment in goods either. 
I'm not going to immolate myself over alignment in goods. Uh, and the whips will be saying to them, look, there is still time. The moment when I think the, the Labour Party uh, would struggle to keep its rebel MPs online would be if this dragged on so long that the final vote was only in January, February. Because at that point, Labour, you have enough Labour MPs going, it doesn't matter, we've just got to, we've got to vote this through. We don't have time to engage in game playing. Right, no, but yeah, nobody um, wants Laurie Parks in M62. Um, what I would like to do though, Stephen, is, is I just think we should, I don't know if there's any way to do this on the podcast, but I kind of want to have some kind of like Brexit sanity watch where we just kind of remember what people voted for in June 2016 and what we're now kind of being offered. I think um, our former colleague Raphael Baer wrote a really good column in The Guardian that was kind of like pointing out about the, the way that the goalposts have moved from essentially kind of like, hooray, the buccaneering free trade nation unshackled from the shuddering corpse of the you know obsolescent um, European Union will now be able to go, go out and do all these kind of great things to... There probably won't be food shortages. Uh, it'll probably be fine. Uh, small dent to GDP, small, but worth it in the long run. Um, and I just think that's the kind of thing that it's run the bit. It's a kind of species of the problem that we have when we talked before about how we cover elections and how you kind of the temptation always with covering elections is to cover them with a kind of teleological view of history, like by what you think is going to happen at the end, and then everything else is. And that has led us so badly astray in the past. Because we haven't talked about what would happen enough in a, a hung parliament like this time round, or we talked too much about what would happen in a hung parliament last time round. Is there something similar happening with Brexit? Like, are we just all assuming something is going to happen that actually could very well not happen? What? So people are effectively going to grade the government's uh, deal versus it not being a cliff? I think people are definitely going to grade on a curve. And one of the things I think worries about me about the kind of continuity remain or anything like that is by talking up the problems of no deal at all you make any deal look amazing and actually you want to compare any deal with the deal that we had before with the european union right which was membership but with all kinds of special perks like not being in schengen not being in the euro our rebate and actually what are we going to end up with at the end that's the those to me are the two comparisons we need to make but there is going to be a kind of distinct like oh project fear said there'd be lorry parks on the m62 and actually you know there's not well, the problem, the <laughs> free, problem free is... Free moving like, traffic on the M62, yeah, woo! Is that if you're a, an MP, right? Yeah, if you're a sensible MP, so you're, you know, kind of... And I don't mean, and one of the things I really can't stand in political discourse is this, like, use of sensible as a synonym for centrist. Uh, because it actually is often quite an important uh, distinction in terms of, like, you know, we can think of any number of factional disputes within parties where none of the people involved are centrists, but some of them are behaving in a distinctly nonsensible way. Oh, yeah. And but, also, I just think that yeah. if anything that this like last couple of weeks has taught us is that the way that George Osborne in particular presented his economic programme as sensible, moderate, common sense and Labour's plans as crazy, like full through to left wing, basically communism was a, just a complete readjustment of the, I'm sorry to say the words Overton window, but I'm going to anyway. You know what I mean? Like, but that's I think that that idea about this just being the rational common sense approach is 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 hijacked by conventional wisdom when often conventionalism turns out to be but false. I think the thing is though is also like the word sensible is also quite useful sometimes to explaining like weird ad hoc alliances in uh, that can appear in hung parliaments. Now, if you are sensible, right, you know that uh, the thing you cannot risk politically is is a no deal exit uh, because although there is a decent chance that the blame is solely confined to the government and you know effectively what happened is, is it, you know finishes the conservative party for decades yada yada uh it it's not certain right it's it, it's too big of a risk to take right and it really doesn't matter 
where you are on the political spectrum. Most people, you know, you'll talk to people in the Labour leader's office, you'll talk to, you know, kind of, you know, sort of Blairite MPs with their foot halfway out the door. You'll talk to conservative leavers who say, I don't like checkers, but look, voting against the final deal is lunacy. Um, from the perspective of all of those people, are they all semi-ending up being involved in this thing where the government's deal is is graded against no deal, shortages, hits the supply chain, immediate fall in uh, living standards, potential for panic buying, et cetera, et cetera? Yes, of course. Equally, however, their first job as legislators is to avoid yeah. that. Right? Um, the difficulty, though, is because obviously a lot of the time I think we tend to cover things in quite a, well, obviously you have to cover things in a day-to-day -day way. Uh, it does mean that you sort of end up in this position where, like the, it will be the easiest trade deal in history, there will be no downside, only a considerable upside, just kind of gets lost. Um, I think there's a real problem holding people to account. I mean, you've come to this before about this idea that you can't have a referendum where the government doesn't support the change proposition because kind of no one's left holding the baby, really. Yeah. And that is my big problem with Brexit is that, you know, it's all very well for Boris Johnson and David Davison to sit on the back benches and carp about how they would have done it differently. But until quite recently, you were doing it. Anyway, we can moan about that. If people have got questions about Brexit, we would be very pleased to answer them, not least the fact that um, uh, it might be able to make me want to read about Brexit. Because I, I think I'm very much like, you know, how Jeremy Corbyn tried to pretend he was in tune with the British people because he didn't really care very much about the EU referendum. I'm very in tune with the British people because I find it very hard to care about the daily minutiae of Brexit. I'm sorry, Stephen. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm joined by the American journalist Rebecca Solnit, author of Call Them by Their True Names, American Crises and Other Essays. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Helen. I wanted to ask you, first of all, how hard is it to write about this moment in American politics? Because from the outside, it seems like such a kind of warren of craziness that I just don't know how you begin to even get a handle on it. You know, it's hard not to. I get uh, inspired in a way. And I gave a talk once that said, Dante had Beatrice, Orwell had Stalin. There is something muse-like about uh, misogyny, patriarchy, uh, the crazy president. Although I try not to pay attention to all the silly things he says and all the little acts of meanness and try and look at the larger issues at climate change and voter suppression and stuff underneath. You can chase Trump's madness around forever if that's what you choose to do. And one of your most effective essays in the book is about the kind of loneliness of, of Trump, which is, I guess, is it's, it's, it's an interesting way of looking at it because we're used to seeing him so much for the left as a kind of hate figure. But you've really traced in that kind of pathology about how, you know, how that person develops and linked it to the kind of the figures in The Great Gatsby, this idea of careless people who are smashing other people's lives. How much do you see him as a kind of almost a mythological figure? I see him as kind of an archetypal figure or an extreme of what privilege does to people. There's a kind of everyday privilege 
of the most powerful person in the family, the office, the university, etc., where you prevent all negative feedback from coming your way. And that results in a world in which you don't really hear from other people and other people eventually kind of disappear from your landscape. And so, as I say in the essay, that's how it's lonely at the top. Other people stop being real. You can tell with Trump, nobody's told him how transparent his lying is, how ridiculous his lack of knowledge is, that that he fears mockery, but he doesn't really grasp how ill-equipped he is for the job he accidentally landed and how much he's reviled. And, um, you know, there's a sense in which in some kind of cosmic joke is on him and he's the only person he doesn't get it. And that's what that's what privilege does to you. I tried out a word privilegiousness for a while at par- <laughs> that sort of smashes privilege into obliviousness because obliviousness is a big part of privilege for, you know, at many different levels from being affluent and not understanding poverty, being male, not understanding women's problems, being white, not understanding what it's like to live under racism. And he really does feel like the the extreme version and also somebody who's been buffered s- since childhood, f- really from knowledge of other people, which is what we steer and navigate and autocorrect by. It was so fascinating reading the New York Times' in, uh, investigation into his tax affairs because it so demolished his myth of himself as the kind of self-made man. And that's clearly like, you know, that's his life lie. That's the thing that he tells himself, that he got where he was because, you know, he was a bootstrapper. He didn't start with anything. And in fact, you get this whole scenario where he's given a big gift by his father and then systematically bailed out over years and years and years and years. You know, this is not somebody who made it on his own, which is the kind of great American conservative shibboleth, right? I feel like next you'll tell me Prince Charles is not a self-made prince. <laughs> right. But, um, yeah, and I think that we had sort of a sense of it, but this extraordinary report, which should have tremendous consequences and doesn't seem to be at least in public discourse, maybe it will be in tax fraud prosecution, does reveal that not only was he dependent on his father's money, as we know, but he was dependent on it into the 21st century, and he's basically never been successful. He's just sort of bumbled about throwing his father's money at things and then throwing money from foreign banks at things, and a lot of those things have failed. He's not particularly competent. And I see this also as part of the life in a bubble thing, that he's also not been told when he's not, you know, he hasn't had real experiences of like, oh, I just lost all my money and that's real. I better pay more attention or do it differently next time. It seems like the money just continually flowed and he just continually threw it at things. And sometimes they worked and often they didn't. And he didn't really comprehend the difference. Right. It's a hell of a kind of welfare assistance program, essentially, that he's, yes. he's had there from a party that, you know, decries any any such thing. I'm also interested in what you felt watching the hearings into the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh as the Supreme Court justice, because that I can't even say the word privilege obliviousness. I felt that very strongly watching him, that this was somebody who couldn't understand. You know, there was a great tweet someone did, which is Brett Kavanaugh wants to see the manager. Right. This idea that he was like, well, why are these people questioning me? You know, I'm not a person who should be I'm the kind of person who should be here. Did you feel that when you watched him, too? Yeah. And it was funny because he even made Trump seem like kind of charming and buffoonish and that Trump is usually cheery in his venom and whatever. And because Kavanaugh was just unbridled rage, what 
while lightly sprinkled with sulkiness and tears. And you saw a man who assumed he was beyond question, and some of that I think is all the other kinds of privilege. Some of it is 12 years of being a judge, which is like being a god. Nobody questions a judge. The judge controls the courtroom like an absolute monarch. And some of it is just male privilege. How dare this woman have a voice? How dare people listen to her? How dare there even be a shadow of a chance that her word be taken over mine? And it was bizarre, too, because she was so cogent and credible and clear in what she had to say. And he had already proven himself to be a person who'd lied repeatedly under oath, including about things he didn't have to lie about, but lied about things he did in the Bush administration and stuff like that. And he told a whole series of lies. And I think that's part of what was so excruciating for American women and like me is to see a tr- the transparent falsehoods of a man will be taken over the profoundly credible voice of a woman um, when the stakes are this high. And, you know, by by the 50 senators who voted for him, not by the American public. And I don't think what she said was without consequence. But um, it was, yeah, the privilege on display and or the entitlement, really, and the rage at the possibility of that entitlement being violated by people daring to ask him questions. Right. I think it's one of those things where if you hadn't seen it, you can't quite grasp it in the way. Like There are certain political moments that you need to see play out in, in real time because you get such an insight into the psychology of somebody by seeing their, you know, their affect. But you mentioned that earlier, which I think is really vital at this moment in history, about writing about structures. Now, writing about the kind of craziness of the whole concept of the Supreme Court and the idea of just, you know, jobs for life and poor old Ruth Bader Ginsburg at whatever it is, 85, doing her special regime to ensure that she doesn't die and they don't lose another seat under a Republican president. Um, how, how how do you bring those stories to life? Because you write in the book about you know, 20 million missing voters, and that's one of the biggest, you know, the kind of outrageous voter suppression and gerrymandering that's happened across the American electoral system. The fundamental rigness of the American electoral system conceived by, you know, slave-owning states to cement their power. How do you make those stories real and, and, and connect with people at a human level? Well, I don't know if they do that or not. I just write what I'm inspired to write and f- want people to know. And um, whether or not they like it is something I'm never quite sure about, you know, like, and, um, but 20 million missing voters was an essay that connected me too to voter suppression. It's been really nice in a horrible way that because the Trump administration is such an equal opportunity hater, the intersectionality, the ability to think about race and gender and orientation and uh, you know, citizenship and voting rights and things together has been much more obvious for me to describe. That essay is an essay that talks about how after Me Too, a wonderful, important conversation started to happen about never mind these men who may be losing their voices in the public arena. Let's think about all the women who never got a voice because they were you know, either deeply traumatized by sexual violence or were, you know, shut out of work as directors, producers, editors, and et cetera, you know, all these roles of power that misogyny prevents women from taking. 
And then I felt like that model applied to voting too. And you don't really control, uh, you know, the narrative with one vote, but you do collectively. And when you look at how many Americans are disenfranchised one way or another, and how many of them are either poor or young or non-white, you see that the story of the United States of America is being told by leaving out their voices and that were they able to vote, we would be telling a very different story, whether it's about human rights, about the environment, about healthcare, about education. And so that we can think also of voting as an arena, as a kind of Me Too arena in which people have not been allowed to speak and their or their voices have not been given the audibility and credibility to which they're entitled, you know, and in which another kind of unfairness and elitism has governed uh, what we do. You've talked in the book a lot about this idea of American crises, and, and there are several of them, but you know, you've got the midterm elections coming up, we keep hearing about a blue wave and Beto O'Rourke and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and some idea that the Democratic Party might slightly be getting its act together and acting as a better balance to some of the excesses of the current Republican administration. Fundamentally, are you an optimist or a pessimist about the state of American political conversation and America's political future? I I always say that hope is neither optimism, which assumes everything will be fine without our participation, nor a pessimist, which says since everything's doomed, we can sit back on the sofa and complain about it. And hope is a sense for me of possibility that puts a lot of demands on you to participate fully. I The present situation is bleak. And one of the things we learned from the Bush administration is that the damage doesn't all get undone, even if you get a relatively good administration afterwards. We lost constitutional rights, civil rights under Bush, and we didn't regain them. We had terrible appointments and those didn't go away. And we lost time in acting on climate change and we did not get that time back. But And the fascinating thing about the United States is in 2045, it will be a white minority country. And there's ways you can see what's happening as the kind of last gasp of the dinosaurs who know the mammals are going to take over the surface of the earth. You know that white men are um, somewhere in the low 30s of the population, you know, including boys and children and uh, left-wing Jews and everything else, but white 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 males are like less than a third of the population now, I believe, or about a third. And um, the idea that they should run everything forever as they did in the past is doomed. And when white people them ourselves become a minority, there will still be conservative places because the population is so unevenly distributed in terms of color and class and political commitment. But um, I do think the majority of America, at least a slender majority, and in some ways a substantial uh, majority of Americans, you know, don't want to see immigrant children in gulags, do want to take action on climate change, do want the rich to pay their fair share of taxes, do want environmental protections, do want um, some kind of healthcare system that works. And it's partly about communicating to them what the choices are beyond the sort of personality entertainment of the media and the propaganda spin. And there's also the problem that Fox News and 
um, and you know, a few other right-wing entities have created a significant population of people who live in a parallel universe of propaganda that's not very accurately related to reality. Whether right, it's which about, is, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. as propagandistic as anything you see in much less obviously democratic states, right? I think some of the, yes. some of the kind of sort of oaths of loyalty that you get to Trump would kind of put Pyongyang to, to shame. Well, I'm, I'm pleased to end there because I know not of optimism, but of hope. So thank you very much. That was Rebecca Solnit and the book is called Call Them By Their True Names and it's out now. Thank you, Helen. And now it's time for a section that we like to call... You ask us. Indeed. What should happen with universal credit? It's a pretty simple one. I mean, I would like to get in a time machine, go back, and I was going to say stop Ian Duncan Smith being born. That seems maybe actually now I think about it a bit over the top. But I've written before that I always saw universal credit as the kind of harbinger of the Brexit argument, right? Which was it was a faith-based proposition. Everybody thought, you know, whether or not you thought the idea was a good, a good one, people were extremely unalert to the idea that there might be it might be an incredibly complicated project to pull off and you should put a lot more time and effort and money into it if you really wanted to do it and Ian Duncan Smith when he was at DWP consistently ignored warnings from the National Audit Office and um, Francis Maud got involved in the cabinet office gave it a red rating to kind of insist that people just if they wanted it enough you know they would get it and it was people being enemies of promise when I did an uh, event with John Donnell at Labour Conference and I asked him about it, he was at that point, he was like, well, we're not closed our mind to scrapping it. Labour official policy at the moment is certainly for a pause and a review, right? Oh, so 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 Margaret As, Greenwood uh, announced a pause and a review at conference. Then yeah. a week later... Margaret Greenwood is the shadow secretary of state for work and pensions for anybody who may not be aware of anyone in the shadow cabinet beyond Emily Thornbury and Diane Abbott, yeah. i.e. most people. Then a couple of days later, John McDonnell on Sky went, no, we'll we'll end it. But yeah, OK, so I, I heard that, but he also didn't say where the money would come from to end it. So I'm going to kind of I'm regarding that as sort of a kind of well, so aspiration at the moment. Well, yeah, I mean, so the. The weird thing with universal credit, right, is there are sort of two schools of thought. School school one is essentially, it's a nice idea in theory, uh, but it's been gutted by having so many cuts front loaded onto it. The Treasury effectively using it as a politically painless way of doing welfare cuts, because basically your problem is you go, we're going to cut your tax credits. And people go, mm, I'm pretty angry about that. And they go, OK, don't worry, your tax credits are fine. But when universal credit comes in, there'll be some cuts into that. Um, Which is what essentially Osborne said after Heidi Allen and others rebelled yeah. from the back benches over the tax credit cuts. Yeah, I, I mean, I buy that as a thesis. Phil Collins once wrote a, a column comparing it to the Sagrada Familia, the Gaudi Cathedral in Barcelona, which has basically been just a, like five years away from being finished since, you know, 1960, whatever. And that, you know, that everybody, Labour had thought it was a good idea, but conspicuously failed to enact it because the idea of rolling all these benefits into one is a phenomenally complicated task. I've just seen this... Um, Today's come in that the bishops, yeah, bishops are getting involved now, call for urgent action on more than 30 bishops backing a petition brought by End Hunger UK, calling for the government to fix universal credit, including providing more help and a more flexible system of claimants applying for those already receiving the benefit. Yeah. The problem been is that there has been a brilliant, like if you were going to design an experiment, a policy experiment to show the effects of a policy, actually the way that universal credit rollout has happened is one of them, right? Because you've ended up with control areas, i.e. places that still have the old benefit system with individual benefits, job seekers allowance, all of those. And then you have all these increasingly 
you know, places where it's being rolled out, first of all, to uncomplicated claimants like single men just claiming job seekers allowance, then to much more complicated cases. And what's happened is that we've seen as it's got to every new area that people have ended up much more in rent arrears. So landlords are complaining. People have ended up relying much more heavily on food banks, according to data from the Trussell Trust, right? You can just see that it is not working because there is a before and after universal credit was here, right? Yeah. I mean, so I'm, uh, yeah. And so then there's the other side of the argument, which uh, is an effectively universal credit problems are much wider than a lack of money and it needs to be paused and un- and unpicked, and you go back to something like the legacy system. Now, I'm a lot more sympathetic to that, partly because the bits of universal credit that are uh, effective, I always think, you know, in public policy, it's a really bad idea if, like, you, your overwhelming assumptions about how something will work are freighted with the word should, right? Oh, well, people should do this, or it should have this effect, right? Actually, like, if you're... The, the aims of your welfare system are to support people as a safety net and to uh, make work pay. I mean, does universal credit succeed on that metric? Well, it, it does if by making work pay, it means you are a single earner couple uh, where one of you stays home to look after the child because universal credit has decided that is desirable. Uh, if you are a woman looking to escape a financially uh, controlling partner, universal credit does not work well. Because and, it gives the money yeah, to him, to the household. And it doesn't actually matter if you... And while there may be problems with uh, the actual amount as well, which there are, it, even if the amount that was going to one member of the household was adequate, it still has that inbuilt problem. And That's all- the bit that really annoys me, having been doing this feminist book and going back to the 70s and the start of child benefit and the, you know, the argument about putting it in the purse, not the wallet, and the fact it wasn't going to go on to pay packets of men primarily, because at that point it, men were far more in the workforce than women. Like, And all of this evidence got done in the early stages of committee reports on this. Like, This is what most annoys me about universal credit, is it's not like the evidence wasn't there, like no one pointed out the problems. This is what I mean about the ideological kind of fixation on it, right? Is that it just swept everything away because no, 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 we're convinced this is going to work. Yeah. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Um, and also there's another kind of problem with universal credit as a kind of permanent end state, which is that we are for a variety of reasons, some positive, some not positive, entering into this weird world where it's going to become increasingly difficult to work out if government interventions are actually helping people in need. I think one of the interesting long-term policy uh, drifts that I uh, think is positive is that we are going to gradually get rid of free school meals, right? They will just become universal. And I think from like a diet perspective, able to improve quality, economies of scale for schools, there are lots of reasons why that is desirable. However, free school meals at the moment are a very important way that you measure whether or not a school is just yeah, is succeeding by hot housing people who are already going to do well, or if it's genuinely right. Because you can go, oh, hang on, let's look at free schools. Uh, what percentage of pupils on free school meals are they taking? Right, and then you yeah. can find out whether or not they're genuinely reflecting the needs of that community, or if they're becoming a kind of sharp elbows destination. Now, at the moment, you there are two ways you can do that. You can uh, track income support, or you can track free school meals. At the moment, it feels likely that both those uh, metrics are going to become less and less useful. However because UC goes quite so far up the income scale uh, because of because it incorporates tax credits and it becomes much harder to go, well, is this school actually succeeding uh, for the poorest? I just think there are so many disbenefits to UC as it currently exists. However, of course, the flip side of, of UC is, as well as being allegedly a political project to make work pay, although in practice, of course, 
one can uh, very easily critique that. It's also a treasury project to reduce the benefits bill. And the flip side, so we basically, this this is a, a composite question, as it were, because we get this from our political, uh, our podcast listeners who, who range across the uh, political spectrum. And if you do want to use universal credit to reduce the benefits bill, it's actually really bad at doing that as well, because it does it in a such a personally and politically painful way. It really hurts the people involved, and it, it's quite painful for uh, conservative MPs in marginal seats who have lots of voters who are on some form of in-work benefit. If you really want to reduce the benefits bill uh, in a politically painless way, just close a bunch of job centres and, and ease off on conditionality, which we know doesn't really work. Just make a bunch of people who work in job centres redundant, sell off some buildings, end some rental leases, bish bash bosh, well done, you've reduced the benefit, you know, the size of the D- DWP's headcount. Um, or end the triple lock on pensions. Yeah, but that would be electorally... Kind Suicidal. Of, <laughs> yeah, or, I mean, also, so things I have, policies I'm increasingly sold on, uh, the argument made by uh, by the leader's office in the last election... Labour, this Labour, is. Labour, yeah, was that uh, you needed to maintain the triple lock because occupational pensions are going to be this weird hodgepodge of people's eight different employers. Nest, like, yeah, yeah, bits and um, from here and... And you, yeah. we're just going to have to accept and we're going to need a really strong uh, underlying state safety net. I do think there is a bit of an issue when you've ended up in a situation when you take out housing costs and pensioner incomes are higher than working age incomes, right? I think at that point, no wonder people of working age do feel quite bitter about the tax credits being withdrawn, right? Because you are essentially, you know, there is the pension argument as always, we've worked hard all our lives, but equally the working age argument is we're currently working hard all our lives and we plan to continue doing that so we also deserve support yeah i mean also ultimately like the other important thing about tax credits and the other reason why uh, the universal credit tax uh, cuts as well as the human cost would terrify me were i a conservative mp is in the last recession tax credits did form a stabilizer underneath wages uh which probably did prevent that recession being even deeper than it otherwise would have been seeing as we will at some point have another recession not having that kind of support undergirding of 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 strong in work benefits to prop up wages when people will see reductions in hours and all of the things and businesses do in tough times to avoid actually laying people off uh, creates economic problems uh, down the line as well. Um, but the flip side of that is some people would just say, "Oh well, just put loads and loads more money into universal credit." But you really at that point are talking about loads billions of money and billions to and fix billions. it. Yeah. Um, you know, the, you know, lots of ministers and MPs, I think, are putting far too much faith in the fact that... So at the moment, most people who are on it are satisfied because, um, because obviously they did lots of the easy cases first. And the things about it which are genuinely good, uh, like the ability to get more of your benefits up front, for example, if you are, say, a graduate who's just entered unemployment, who's looking for enough money to buy a nice interview suit... Yeah, that's great. And of course, you then, when you're asked if you were satisfied by by UC, go, yeah, I loved that. That's but the problem. I feel these... like that's a benefit system that's designed for people whose lives are generally going pretty well, yeah. right? So you've got, you know, that graduate in, is a good example, right? Because that's probably, you're talking about someone who's maybe like, parents might let them stay in their spare room for a bit, who's got, you know, a flat chair kind of coming up. What you're not talking about is somebody who's just come out of a like a hostel for the homeless or from, uh, you know, come out of prison and like, gone on to remand Or is like, indeed unemployed after like years of low paid work because like... And has you know, no savings or anything like that, you know, or anything, to, or, or has no family nearby to rely on, you know, yeah. like is stuck in temporary accommodation. That's the problem is don't design a benefit system for the kind of people by and large who don't claim benefits for a long time. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. So, I mean, so Johnny Mercer, uh, 
you know, got, uh, you know, pilloried on Twitter, including with some very nasty and unnecessary stuff, because he said, look, it works. People are satisfied with it. And it's just like, well, yes, the people on it, I mean, one, the satisfaction ratings are continually dipping down as the people on it start to look more like the remaining seven-eighths of people who are claiming some form of social security. And obviously the pause has happened, so clearly this, this argument has slightly been defeated internally. But there is a, there are a, a large number of people in the Conservative Party who I think are massively overreading the satisfaction of a group of people who, as you say, do not look like the average person who claims social security. I think your point about data collection is really interesting as well, because it's one of my concerns about reforms to Gender Recognition Act, which the consultation for that uh, closes at the end of this week, in and about census data, actually, if, because we have not ever got to the stage where we disaggregate biological sex and kind of cultural gender. You're ending up in a situation where it's quite hard for like the NHS to keep records of who needs a smear test, right? And that doesn't, it's not about how you identify, it's about whether or not you've got a cervix or not, ditto prostate screening. Uh, and, and that is a, we, we just like, weirdly, when we're in a world, particularly in tech, where the data held on us is so incredibly granular, like the data that the state holds on us is often weirdly crap. Um, but that's... Well, the NHS is the, weird, is the weirdest one of all, because logically, if you can find a way to unblock it, right? You've, you've got years and years of patient data, huge kind of things which could potentially unlock huge health improvements, uh, make, well, including making lots of money for, for, the, for the government as a provider of this information. And improving health outcomes too. The work that DeepMind has been doing with um, eye diagnosis, right, which they take retinal scans and run them through AIs that can uh, as accurately as a, a surgeon predict stuff. And, and, and you, could, you could just use that simply as, I'm going to say the word backstop, but I mean it in its old sense, not its new scary Brexit sense. To, you know, as this kind of second check on, on human diagnosis. Like that, all that stuff, if we had all that information much better available and people were okay with it being used, there are obviously concerns about it. But let's not talk about that now because that's like a whole other world of pain. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Helen Lewis. This week was recorded by me, Stephen Bush, which is why the sound quality is so bad. It was ably cleaned up by our producer, Caroline Crampton. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you've enjoyed the New Statesman podcast, please do subscribe to the New Statesman in print or online and do sign up to my free morning email, Morning Call. What does it take to move the needle on the world's toughest problems? On Better Heroes, we've sourced the globe for passionate individuals and visionary companies who are all on a mission to solve humanity's most urgent challenges. Like, can AI make the world a better place? How can we change our consumption habits to better serve the environment? And what can we do to make our financial systems work for all? This series will convince you that humanity can save itself and our planet. Better Heroes is by EY and produced by Human Group Media. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.